The following podcast contains explicit language. It's Friday, May 5th, 2017. From Slate, it's The Gist. I'm Mike Pesca. Happy Cinco de Mayo, or as we call it here on The Gist, happy third anniversary. I take you back to 2014, a heady, glorious time, a time when, if you can believe it, everyone with a pre-existing condition was covered by health care. Wait. What? Oh yeah, surveys show that some people binge the gist a few months after they're recorded. So who knows, when you're listening to this, what I just said may not be true. The pre-existing conditions may be game on. So back then, an asthmatic young teenager would get his inhaler for less than $5,000 a month in premiums. Uh, A pregnant woman who happened to be pregnant in Idaho might not have to bear the cost of her health care. Whereas today, meaning a little bit in the future from 2017, if that Idaho woman's sister lived in California, she'd probably be fine because their state wouldn't opt out of the pre-existing coverage. So what I'm going to predict will happen in the near future, although if you're listening to it in the near future, it will have happened now, is that pregnant women will move to pro-pre-condition coverage states. So there'll be some states with just all the pregnant women and some states with none of the pregnant women. Right. Or and this is this could go on. I I could foresee this happening. A pregnant woman in, say, Idaho will claim that she got pregnant from a man from California. And since his sperm is half the equation, she should be covered under the pre-existing condition laws of that state. Let us see the Ninth Circuit grapple with that. Idaho is within their purview. But let's also remember this. And this is in seriousness. Just five months and five days before the gist began, you know, 2013, there was no mandatory coverage of pre-existing conditions. It was being phased in. Different states had different rules regarding their risk pools. But this was not a universal American right as recently as 2013. So to be clear, I'm against not covering pre-existing conditions. The president says he is also, yet apparently this bill's going to let it happen if states opt out. But it is not throwing us into the abyss of the Holy Roman Empire. I have heard people, people who I agree with politically, decrying this bill as an unconscionable evil, as an assault on humanity and Americanism. Well, maybe humanity, but not America. This is a step back. It is not that far a step back. It is a step back to how it always was for hundreds of years. Just some perspective, and I feel I could offer it. I'm a man who has three years under his belt. On the show today, it's all healthcare. I spiel about how we mistook repeal's chances. But first, I'm joined by someone who I think is the very best guy to hash out the ins and outs. Your copay is zero. Your deductible, just 15 minutes or so. Sarah Cliff of Vox up next. This episode is brought to you by The Jordan Harbinger Show. You've heard me talk about The Jordan Harbinger Show because it's one of my favorites. He does in-depth interviews with some of the world's most fascinating minds. I can name a few. Barbara Boxer, Anderson Cooper, Michael McFall, the Ukraine or Russia ambassador talking about Ukraine. One I recently listened to was Stanley McChrystal, the general, the former general. And he told an interesting story about revering Robert E. Lee. But then after having a portrait of him for 40 years, he's a 63-year-old man throwing it in the trash. Because his wife says, you know, what that picture and that man means to you, it doesn't mean to other people, and you have to understand that. And then in the interview, they got around to the point where 
McChrystal talked about that interview in Rolling Stone magazine that pretty much ended his career, where I uh, got to the desk of Barack Obama and it had McChrystal saying unflattering things about the war effort and just how he talked to his wife and how they decided not to be bitter and not to wallow in. He could have taken some shots at the process, the reporter or the president at that point, but he didn't. It was just an overall good interview. It was facilitated by Jordan's excellent interview style. Whether Jordan is conducting an interview or giving advice to a listener, you will find something useful that can apply to your own life in every single episode of The Jordan Harbinger Show. That could mean learning how to ask for advice the right way or discovering a little mindset tweak that changes how you see the world. Search for The Jordan Harbinger Show. That's H-A-R, like the first three letters in hard, B-I-N-G-E, as in how you'll want to catch up on all the episodes on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. So joining me now is Sarah Cliff. She is a senior writer for Vox, uh, the senior writer, the dean or doyen of the healthcare press corps. I've just elevated her. Hello, Sarah. How Hi, are you? Hi. Thank you. That's a great title. I should start using sure, it. Sure. Why not? Take it. Take it. It's not. There's I will. no uh, double checking that. Yes. Okay. Other than the uh, MacArthur Amendment, which allows states to get a waiver to waive pre-existing condition conditions. How is this bill different from the one that uh, failed to get a vote a couple months or a month and a week ago? So it's really that waiver and one other waiver, um, a waiver that lets states get out of covering the essential health benefits. This is a package of benefits that Obamacare required all insurance companies to cover. It mandated prescription drug, drug coverage, maternity care coverage. Those were two things that individual market policies often would leave out because they're quite expensive. Those are really at the heart of the changes that were made between the bill that failed to get a vote in March and the bill that passed on Thursday. And those two are essentially buy-offs or uh, what's a kind way to say it, addresses the uh, ideological needs of the Freedom Caucus. Is that yes. right? Yes. These are 100 percent driven by the right wing of the Republican Party. One of the things that was kind of remarkable to see is the bill that was proposed in March, the one that never got a vote. It was proposed. It was opposed both by the far right wing and the moderates in the Republican Party. The right wing got what they wanted in this bill and the moderates got like a teeny tiny something and then just jumped on board, um, suggesting they yeah. do not have much bargaining power at this point. I understand that moderates like uh, Fred Upton and Billy Long, they got $8 million, which won't go very far. $8 billion. To, uh, So, sorry, billion with course, a B. Eight billion. Yeah. Yeah, I know. But still, in when we're talking healthcare, might as well be uh, 85 cents. Um, but what about, we don't know who the moderates were who would have voted against it because there was no vote, but it was report. I mean, the like Rodney Frelinghausen, who's a uh, New Jersey representative, who is a centrist, who chairs a very important committee. He was against it, but he voted for this bill. Why would a guy like that have changed his mind? You know, they really could not have a lot of votes to lose. And when you look at the folks who voted against it, a lot of them tend to be in more moderate suburban districts that Hillary Clinton won. We're talking about like Dave Reichert in the Seattle suburbs, um, Mike Kaufman in the in the Denver suburbs. Um, you know, I think they wanted to give some of their more moderate members a, a chance to vote no, but they didn't have a lot of those votes to hand out, right? Like they had 270 votes in favor. They needed to get to 215. So some people were just required to take some pretty hard votes here. Yeah. Or, uh, you know, I guess a theory of mine, but you would know better, is that the MacArthur Amendment is, I've called it, uh, cynically genius in that if you are in the mod a moderate district in a bluish state, you say to yourself, well, my people, my state's not going to opt out of uh, existence 
recovering pre-existing conditions, right? A New Jersey senator, sorry, a New Jersey representative would say that. A Michigan representative, well, let me take Michigan off the table. A a state of Washington representative might say that. Yeah. Yeah. And therefore, uh, that gets enough votes there. The people, if the job of a representative is to represent his people, he's saying to himself, uh, my people won't be hurt. Yeah, I think that's part of it. I mean, another thing is that one of the other kind of like cynical genius parts of going through these amendments and this back and forth is there was just a lot less focus this time on like what the bill actually does. Like everyone talked about this amendment, which matters, but like the real core of it is that 24 million people will lose health insurance coverage. And that was all people could talk about in the lead up to the first scheduled vote in March. This time it was about an amendment and then like $8 billion for the moderates. And it felt like a lot smaller ball, which I think actually made it a little easier once that stuff was a little kind of out of sight. I think it's, um, you know, hard for us in the media. We're constantly keeping up with like the newest thing and the newest amendment. But the actual core bill here is still what matters most. It's not this amendment they added on. It's the fact that millions of people lose health insurance. And there just wasn't as much discussion of that going into the vote we had on Thursday. Well, the CBO, when is the CBO going to score it, by the way? That's an excellent question. Um, We're hearing like sometime in the next week or two. Um, So we're still waiting. We don't have a score on the bill that they voted for on Thursday. I sense that had a huge impact last time. Yeah, I think it really, you know, um, changed the debate when that score came out. It really made it quite clear what this bill would do. And I think, you know, that's one reason why they wanted to get this vote before the CBO score, although it feels... Very politically short-sighted to me that, you know, the score is going to come out one way or another and you don't even get to make up your mind about whether you want to vote for it. You voted for it already. So if it's a bad score and, you know, it probably will be in the neighborhood of the last one that, you know, the attack ads just kind of start writing themselves. Any guess? No, not guess. (laughs) Learned, informed, uh, uh, prognostication about the direction of both the numbers, the numbers of insured and the savings? It is. It's hard to tell at this point because you've had things happen that would increase coverage and things happen that would decrease coverage. The thing that would decrease coverage are these waivers. And waivers are really hard for CBO to estimate because unlike, you know, policies that they say affect everywhere, CBO has to make essentially an informed guess of how many states will take up these waivers. So part of this just depends on CBO's reading of the political landscape and policy landscape of how widely these will be used. So that is kind of one factor that should lead to a lower coverage estimate and a lower cost estimate, because if less people are getting health insurance, you're spending less money to help those people get health insurance. But you do have a few changes that would offset those losses. They've added um, between the opt-in amendment and amendment a week before They've added about um, $25 billion to help pay for coverage for people with pre-existing conditions that should offset some of that loss. So my guess is we'll see something in the ballpark of the first CBO report, but it's just it's a little unpredictable and hard to know right now. What's the dynamic going to be in how people react to it if fewer people lose health care than in that previous bill that didn't get a vote? Is the big headline going to be however many million people will lose health care? Or is the big headline going to be, oh, this bill really is better than the last one? Right. Like, that's a great question, right? Because, like, let's say the CBO last time they said 24 million people lose coverage. And this time they say 20 million, which would have been a huge number the first time around. Like, I think back to when that first CBO report was coming out, most outside analysts thought it'd be like 
10 to 15 million people. 24 was like not even in the range people were thinking about. And I think you will definitely see leaders in the Republican Party, if you get anything less than 24 million in coverage loss, they'll go out there and say, look, we fixed the bill. It's better than the last one. And, you know, I think the headline number from a lot of newspapers, like I think of like how an outlet like Fox would cover that, we would probably say, you know, the actual coverage loss number. But I think, you know, they definitely can spin this easier in their favor. I think the harder situation, which is quite possible, is that it'll lead to more coverage loss. And then you're going to have to say it's a huge number and that the bill is getting worse. Mm. How do you think the Senate will react to the CBO score and this bill in general? Oh, um, not not with enthusiasm, it appears. So you already have, I think we're at two senators who said who just came out right away and said, I don't support this bill. You had a who are they? Senator Heller from Nevada and Senator Portman from Ohio, both states. Okay, that, and that's yeah. that's interesting because they made some noises last time, but the ones who came out and said, I'm definitely not supporting the bill that didn't get come to a vote mm-hmm. were more, well, th- the Senate version of, of Freedom Caucusers, yeah. Rand Paul and Cruz and Cotton. Yeah, they've been a little quieter so far. So what we've seen happen in, you know, what the uh, day or so since the House bill passed is that A few senators have said we're not going to support it. Most of them have concerns about Medicaid expansion. They're senators from states that expanded Medicaid. And then you've had another handful of senators say, we're going to write our own bill. Like, we're not, we'll we'll look at what you did, but we're going to start from scratch. You've had a working group of uh, 12 senators come together. Um, I like to call it the 12 angry men because they're probably not thrilled about this task and they're all male. And they are going to confront the exact same challenges that the House did about how much of Obamacare do we keep? How many people can we keep covered? What do we do about Medicaid expansion? What do we do about, you know, um, Ted Cruz is in this working group. He's someone who really wants to wipe Obamacare off the books entirely. Um, but you also have Senator Portman in this group who really wants to save Medicaid expansion. So the meetings of those groups will be very heated, I imagine. And it could move a little bit slower than it did in the House. I don't know if the 12 angry men will be able to solve health care, but if, at least if they decide that Amy Schumer's hot, they would have accomplished <laughs> something. Um, but how far can a Senate bill go from a House bill until you say, well, these, I mean, the topic is health care, but these are such disparate pieces of legislation, you know, we can't cobble them together. They're incompatible. Yeah. And I think they'll be, you know, that's, going to be the question. And I think you have a more moderate Senate that is more interested in saving Medicaid expansion. So I think Medicaid is going to be a huge area of tension between the bills. And I I think you're right, you'll end up with quite different legislation coming out of the two of them. That being said, I think there is also a motivation to cobble these together. One of the things I think I underestimated up until this vote happened was how strong, you know, the desire and fear of failure on repeal and replace is within the Republican caucus right now. Um, Nobody, it was interesting to hear a lot of legislators will say, I don't think this bill is especially great, but we need to do something. So, you know, I voted for it because we can't let our constituents down. And I think there is a very strong desire, both in the House that we just saw and that we will see in the Senate, not to be kind of like the guy left holding the bag who was the roadblock to Obamacare repeal. So as much as I don't think the Senate is, you know, enthused to take up this task. They don't want to end up in the situation where, you know, the House handed them this 
bill and that they were, you know, in an in an era where we have a Republican White House, Republican Congress, they were the roadblocks to delivering on this campaign promise they've made for seven years now. But take me through once the Senate passes the bill and let's say the Senate's bill is not repeal and replace. It's more, you know, revise and revisit. Right. So it's very it's it's a watered down version of the House bill. Then it goes to what's called a reconciliation committee. Is that right? Yeah. Conference committee. So basically, yeah, you bring in both the bills and you try and cobble them together into one bill. When we say that uh, either moderate uh, senators or Republicans uh, are worried about uh, the bill, when we talk about the political costs of uh, senators in purple states, I think what we're saying is that um, the costs would be borne because people would lose coverage and they would be very upset or their neighbors and family members would be upset. And they would certainly just based on that fact alone, it doesn't matter what their policies are on abortion or foreign policy. I mean, that will drive votes. How certain are we that that dynamic will be the most important dynamic, uh, that enough people will be upset that senators will have to fear reelection? So that is an excellent question. And it's really something um, it's testing a lot of assumptions political science has about how entitlement programs work. There's kind of been, you know, up until really this moment, this prevailing assumption among political scientists that once you create an entitlement program, once you expand health insurance, politicians, you know, are not going to roll it back because it's so unpopular and it's so unpopular to take health insurance away from millions of people. And I think one of the things we're seeing tested here is whether ideology is becoming so strong that it actually doesn't matter, that you do live in an era now where it is possible to roll these things back yeah. and that legislators feel and not okay only ideology about that. Among, and not only ideology of the lawmakers, even ideology of the citizens. Yes. The last bill had a 17% approval rating. But if this is the real thing that could roll back Obamacare, maybe automatically that approval rating doubles. Right. And I think, you know, with more polarized partisan districts, I think one other thing to keep in mind is that you know, 24 million people is a lot of people. It's also a small fraction of the population. I think we're talking about like eight or nine percent, which is, you know, no doubt a big group of people. But, you know, maybe legislators in some of these places are feeling like their um, constituents hate Obamacare enough and hate Democrats enough that they could weather this vote. And that would be very different. There is no precedent really in American politics for rolling back a very large entitlement program. We've just never seen that happen. There's very little international precedent for those sort of things. So it'd be a gamble, but it is one that Republicans are inching a lot closer to taking right now. My last question is this. Of the people who spoke at the Rose Garden uh, yesterday, how many of them do you think read the bill or say, for instance, when your story broke said, yeah, I knew about this? So I would say, you know, Dr. Price, HHS secretary, and Seema Verma, who runs Medicare and Medicaid, they're very knowledgeable health policy people. They probably had a very good understanding of the bill. You know, Tom Price introduced one of the original Obamacare repeal bills when he was a legislator. So I think they have a good grasp on a health care policy. I don't know if they knew about this particular exemption. My guess is they didn't and were quite frustrated when they found out about it. But there are people who actually like, care about the details of health policy. The other legislators there, it's a little harder to tell. And I mean, it does feel a little bit telling that all, you know, 217 Republicans decided to vote for this bill when they didn't know how much it costs or who it would cover. 
it suggests the goal is just passing something and less concern with what that something is. Sarah Cliff is a senior writer for Vox. She covers healthcare. She is a panelist on the Weeds podcast from Vox, which is excellent. And I predict they have a, a new podcast coming out. I will be predicting that they will be excellent again today. Hey, Sarah, thanks so much. Thank you. And now the spiel. In passing a rewrite of healthcare, House Republicans showed their mettle. Now remember, two properties of mettle are that it is ductile and malleable. Ductile, the quality of being drawn into wire. Malleable, the quality of being pounded into sheets. And that's what we'll see. A drawn out process in the Senate whereby they pound away at this thing to satisfy moderates and maybe even some hardliners. But I don't want to be certain about what will happen. And I especially do not want to be dismissive of the chances that this thing becomes law, a potent law, that it rolls back a lot of the gains of Obamacare and does indeed become one of the very first examples in human history of conscious detitlement. Remember conscious decoupling? This is conscious detitlement. Now you have it? Now you don't. And not because our society collapsed, but just because we thought it was best to take this thing we gave you back away from you. No backsies. Actually, there are backsies. I do find that when the first bill, the one in March, failed to get a vote, there was celebrating and over certainty. That failure was a result of poor White House tactics. That was true, but the White House could get better tactics, and it seems like they have. We were also told that that failure was because of just the fundamentals. The House couldn't agree. Failure was baked into the DNA of a sprawling, at-odds-with-itself Republican caucus. Here's NPR making an analogy. Well, what we know about President Trump is what he wants is a win. He doesn't really care in particular about the details. But while hardline conservatives really are on board with this, uh, you know, some of these changes, moderates are saying that they don't like. So Republicans have the same problem that they started with. The whole thing is like a water balloon. You squeeze one end, the other side pops open. And no matter which end you squeeze, they still have the same problem. In Greek myth, this is something like the Procrustean bed. Procrustes, the bandit stretched or amputated the limbs of travelers to make them conform to the length of his bed. Well, the Republicans realize, hey, you know what? We could just get a bigger box or a bigger bed. Duh. And I sensed that due to the failure of the first try of this thing, the media thought failure was inevitable. Wall Street Journal on Wednesday, healthcare edges close to the brink. Charlie Rose, same morning, CBS. President Trump says it's time for Congress to vote on replacing Obamacare, but the nearest plan appears to be on the brink of collapse. It still does not have enough Republican support to pass in the House. Yeah, well, no votes became yes votes became 217 votes. Experts and pundits thought the past would replay itself, but circumstances this time were different. In March, the entire Freedom Caucus en masse was against it. There were over 30 no votes to that bill, and the White House was trying in vain to turn no's to yeses. This time, there were 20 or so no's, and the White House and Paul Ryan were trying to prevent defections. Different dynamic. Also, think about how the Freedom Caucus works. They take a blood oath. When the majority of the Freedom Caucus opposes something, all their members oppose it. That is their decree. But with the moderates, like members of the Tuesday Caucus, they just do what they want, such as the characteristic of being a moderate. 
So passage of this bill was always more likely than it was portrayed. And the MacArthur Amendment was clever. It wasn't just harmful, it was clever. It allowed states to screw over their own sickest citizens. So moderates from states who didn't have the appetite for that could rest easy. Now, of course, as a sympathetic sort, I don't really see it that way, just pure political calculus. I mean, I remember when we used to say that it is a shame that in America, 40 million people don't have health care. It is a shame that we're living in America and 45 million people don't have health care, right? I do not remember saying it's a shame that 35 million people do not have health care, except for the Alabamans, Texans, and Kentuckians because their states opted out. They're no longer part of the shame. We called this thing zombie health care. But the zombie turned out to be resilient, as zombies are. We were kind of stupid about it. Maybe the zombies ate our brains. The zombie walks. It's now banging at the Senate door, and it will be hard to kill. The undead are just a huge hassle. It turns out that having already expired one time is a pretty thorny pre-existing condition. That's it for today's show. Mary Wilson, just producer, she's like a turtle who's too small for her shell. So once one leg sticks out, the other three get sucked underneath. Just producer Chris Berube is like a Ferrari Testarossa that's just too big for its car tarp. It's rearing on all cylinders, but either the headlights or the tail is exposed. Steve Lichtai, executive producer of Slate Podcast, is like a giant Mr. Met who's only been issued a regular Met baseball cap. The thing looks like a yarmulke on the guy. He's not offending the Lord, but still, very little coverage from the rain. And speaking of rain, Andy Bowers, chief content officer of the Panoply Network. This guy's like a grizzly bear in a raincoat. He's angry about it. Doesn't fit. Paddington was a lie. The gist. We're like 27 minutes of content in a 23-minute shell. Three years of this, and I still talk so fast at the end that no one can tell what the hell I'm saying when I say, oomperu depperu duperu, and thanks for listening.